Um, Father, we just we take a moment um, again in quiet uh, just to allow our minds and our hearts to, uh, to still, um, to come to attention in your presence and before you. And you know there are lots of things that can be um, a distraction for us as we come to your word this morning. Uh, things that are in the week that's just gone by or in the week that's coming or things that are, are worrying us or bothering us. Um, Father, I want to ask, would you just by your spirit uh, come and settle our minds and hearts? Um, we believe, we trust that you are eager to speak to us this morning, that you're wanting to say things to us that will um, be deeply healing and helpful in our lives. Um, and so, Father, we pray, would you speak to us this morning by your spirit and by your word? Uh, would you help us to be paying attention, to receive from you the things that you want to say, and let them be planted really deeply in our spirits and our hearts and bear good, good fruit? Uh, and we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. It's going to take a drink. My, my voice is a little, a little husky this morning. Hopefully it'll hold out. Um, as we go, um, we're we're coming, uh, we're coming, I guess, towards the the middle of the book of Ephesians, and we're coming to uh, a passage this morning that I think is rightly uh, and understandably one of the most famous in Ephesians, uh, one of the most beloved. Um, and so, let let's jump right in. I'm gonna I'm gonna read it. It's a prayer. Um, you already have noticed as you read Ephesians that Paul just seems at times to kind of go in and out of prayer. He's talking about things and then he prays for a while and then he goes back into talking about things and then he prays for a while. And it's kind of a good, a good habit to get into, I think, um, in our lives as well, just to flow in and out of prayer um, as you go. Um, and so we come to this beautiful prayer at the centre uh, of the letter. So this is uh, Ephesians 3, reading from uh, verse 14. Paul says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Um, of course, the best thing I can um, encourage you to do this week is, uh, whether you remember any of my message this morning or not, is just to carry that prayer with you into the week and pray it. Uh, maybe, maybe just for a little while every day, pray that prayer and to see how it resonates in your, in your heart and spirit um, as, you, as you go into the week. Um, I want to, um, just to begin, I want to walk through a few of the phrases near the beginning of the prayer, and then we'll kind of get into the, 
the heart of it, uh, where we're going to spend, spend kind of most of our time. Uh, but just a few of the phrases near the beginning. Paul begins by saying, uh, for this reason. Um, so in other words, Paul is saying, in light of everything that we've already been talking about so far in this letter, um, Paul prays. Um, and to me, um, that, it's a wonderful reminder. Uh, the, the, the letter to the Ephesians, like a lot of Paul's letters, uh, people often observe that Paul's letters often... The first half is often teaching, uh, teaching the gospel. It's kind of, people sometimes call it doctrine or theology that he does in the first half, teaching us about Jesus and, um, and what's true about the gospel. And then the second half of the letter, which we're going to get into next week, he starts to talk really practically about Christian living and what, how we should live and how we should walk. Um, so it's kind of theology or teaching in the first half and then um, practical living in the second half. Um, but this, this prayer at the end of the first half, to me, is a good reminder that um, any time you're doing biblical theology and trying to think deeply about the Bible and truth and what we believe, it always needs to get turned into prayer. Uh, and actually, that's quite a good kind of health check because um, our theologizing and our thinking deeply about things can go off in really unhelpful directions. Um, if we finish our theologizing and just feel really good about ourselves and really smart because we understand big, deep things, that's not very good. That's getting puffed up by knowledge, uh, which Paul sometimes talks about. Um, if we finish our theologizing and just think about how we are right and certain other people we know are wrong, that's not very healthy or very helpful either. The best thing to do when we finish thinking about the content of the gospel is to turn it into prayer. That's a sign that our, our thinking about the Bible and about truth is healthy, I think. We, turn it, we pray for our brothers and sisters. Uh, we turn it into prayer. Um, for this reason, uh, we pray. Um, second little phrase, Paul um, says, I kneel before the Father. Um, and just, just noting in passing, uh, this phrase is maybe a little bit of a surprise because we know that in... Uh, the time in which Paul was writing, in the time of Jesus, in the time of the early church, the normal posture, or the most common posture for prayer was what? What do you think? Was actually standing, was the most common. That's, that's the way most Jews prayed in the first century, uh, was standing on your feet, often with your hands upraised to heaven, uh, or sometimes with your head bowed. But kneeling was relatively rare. And so uh, this, this kind of just catches our attention a little bit. Uh, it emphasizes something of humility as we pray. Um, It emphasizes, I think, something of allegiance to God as king. When you bow the knee, you're saying, you are king, and I acknowledge you as king uh, as I bow. Um, And maybe it just takes us into thinking a wee bit about how our body is involved in prayer, and it's just worth thinking about how, uh, what is the posture that expresses what we want to say in our hearts to God. And sometimes it might be standing, and sometimes it might be kneeling. Maybe you want to suggest in passing slouching or slumping is probably never the best posture. Uh, So there's reasons why standing can be good and there's reasons why kneeling uh, can be good. Um, I kneel before the Father. And then I love this phrase. Paul says, I I kneel before... Oh, my words have gone all over the place here. Uh, Never mind. That's that's kind of pretty, isn't it? It's kind of scattered everywhere. Um, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And there's something I love about that opening. Um, One of the things people uh, today sometimes say, and it's 
It's an idea that came from Freud originally, is that we got the idea of God as father by projecting from our experience of earthly fathers. So we have an experience of earthly fatherhood that's imperfect. And then we kind of projected and imagined, imagine, wouldn't it be lovely if there was a perfect great father in the sky? And so some people who are very cynical say, that's how it went. We started with human fatherhood and then we projected the great father in the sky. And Paul is actually saying, it's the other way around. That actually the whole idea of fatherhood and family comes from God. It was his idea and his invention and his gift. And God has put the longing for family in our hearts. And it's satisfied, first of all, in him. And then in our earthly experience of church and family and all the rest. Um, But I, I love that. Every family on earth, Every experience of family that is good um, comes from uh, God the Father, comes from him. Um, So that's just a few phrases to maybe kind of set the scene um, as we begin. Uh, But I want to kind of get into the heart of the prayer by focusing on this phrase. Um, Paul says, I pray that he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. That, that he may strengthen you with power through his spirit and your inner, inner being. And I, I want to suggest that that word power is really key to this whole prayer. Um, if you scan through it again, you'll find he uses the word power three times in this prayer, that he may strengthen you with power, verse 16, that you may have power, verse 18, according to his power at work within us, verse 20. Um, so I think that's a key uh, central theme of this prayer. And probably it shouldn't be a big surprise because do you remember the last time Paul prayed back in chapter one of Ephesians? Um, A big part of that prayer was that you may know God's incomparably great power for us who believe, which is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. So uh, this Paul's desire, it comes in in both times that he prays in Ephesians, um, is that we would experience the resurrection power of Jesus in our lives. When he talks about knowing that power, I don't think he's talking about just knowing about it. He's he's praying that we would experience it, that it would be a lived reality in our lives. Um, And that power is related to the presence of the Holy Spirit. And again, that should come as no surprise. We remember Jesus saying um, at the beginning of Acts, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Um, Or at the end of Luke, He says, you will be clothed with power from on high. Um, So this promise of power is connected closely to the presence of the Holy Spirit um, in our lives. And I guess um, maybe just want to, right at the beginning, ask uh, just that very simple question. Is that power a reality in your life right now? Um, Or is your experience of life and your Christian walk and your spiritual life a little bit underpowered or a little bit weak or a little bit feeble at the minute? And just to maybe answer that within ourselves, um, I, I think part of what Paul's prayer makes clear is that ordinary Christianity, ordinary Christianity for all of us, is meant to be characterized by an experience of the power of God at work in our lives through the presence of the Spirit. Um, an experience of God, the power of God working within us, um, And it's very easy as we go through our lives just to lose touch with that. 
Um, in one of his other letters, Paul talks about the possibility of having a form of godliness, but denying its power. And I, I always find that phrase really challenging. Um, we can have a form of godliness, so we're kind of living a kind of respectable Christian life, but we can have lost touch with the presence and power of God that's meant to be at work um, at the heart of our lives. And so just a simple question at the beginning, is this a lived reality for us right now, or is this a prayer that maybe we really need this morning, that he may strengthen you with power through his spirit and your inner being? So um, here's, my, here's my next question. Um, what, what do you think it would look like if God's power showed up in your life today? If we pray this prayer uh, that he may strengthen you with power through his spirit and your inner being, if that, if that prayer was answered right now, what would that look like? Um, what, what does it look like for God's power to move in an ordinary human life? Um, and maybe we might start thinking about how we would expect some fireworks, right? If this is the, the power that raised Jesus from the dead, if this is the power that created the cosmos um, and it comes on us in, in power, um, we, we might expect some fireworks, right? Um, we might expect to have all the feelings going off, right? All the feelings would start buzzing and sparking all over the place. Um, we might expect uh, really dramatic miracles to start happening all around us. Uh, we might expect all the problems in our life to be fixed immediately if the power of God um, came on our lives. Um, and all of those things can and may and will happen. Um, but I wonder as you read this prayer, if like me, you find the next phrase a little bit surprising. So that he may strengthen you with power through his spirit and your inner being so that, what, fireworks, buzz, miracles, so that, I'm sorry my words have gone all over the place on my slides this week, but so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. You see that? So that his power, the power of the resurrection, uh, the power of the risen Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit, that dunamis power comes on you. And what is the result? Is that Christ dwells in your hearts through faith. Um, I wonder, for some of us, does that feel a little bit anticlimactic? Um, we're thinking, that sounds really lovely, but I was kind of hoping for something a bit more, with a bit more oomph, a bit more uh, dramatic or exciting or tangible or visible than kind of Christ dwelling in my heart through faith. Um, and I, I want to suggest this morning, because that may be part of our honest reaction, um, that this is what we most need, whether we realize it or not, um, and this is the best thing you can pray for another person, whether they realize it or not, right? There may be lots of other things that grab the headlines of our attention that we want to pray for that are really urgent, but this is the best thing you can pray for another person, um, whether they realize it uh, or not. Um, maybe it doesn't help uh, that we've made this, this idea of Christ dwelling in our hearts, we've made it into a bit of a cliche, haven't we? Um, so sometimes I think we... We throw it around a little bit casually. Um, so we tend to say very lightly, Jesus lives in my heart. And it's become a little bit of a, a it can almost sound like a bit of a twee cliche uh, that we rattle off. Um, I think sometimes when I was growing up as a kid and I heard that phrase, there, there can be really strange images kind of come to your mind. Does anybody else kind of imagine like a little door in your heart and then a little tiny Jesus kind of 
living there? No, it's not just me. But, you know, it's, a re- you know, it's hard. As a child, your mind is very literal and you're trying to get your head around. What does it mean for Jesus to live in your heart, for Christ to dwell in your heart through faith? Um, this is about the living God coming and dwelling within us, right? This is something powerful and life-changing. This is about the power of the risen Jesus um, at work in our lives. Um, so I want to I stay with this phrase for a few minutes, and I want to I think about um, what happens when Christ dwells in your heart? Um, what happens when Christ makes his home within you? This thing that we most need, whether we realize it or not. Um, and I want to I suggest three words um, that I think express some of the power of what happens when Christ dwells within you, right? Um, they're, not, they're not exactly from this passage, but I, I hope you'll agree with me that they're kind of born out of what we're reading. Um, so three words. One is, this word is homecoming. Um, in other words, when Christ dwells in your heart, you have this sense of coming home. As he makes his home inside you, you have this sense of being at home. Um, as we live our lives, uh, you and I know we don't always feel at home, right? We don't always feel at home in our own lives. We don't always feel at home in our own skin. We can feel off kilter and out of place. Um, but whenever Christ dwells in our hearts, we have that sense, this is my heart's true home. Um, my truest home is found when Christ dwells in me and I dwell with him or in him. Because um, you can talk about it in both ways. Um, maybe, maybe to clarify this a wee bit, um, I should say this, that Scottish people um, have always confused me, right? Just in general. I never un- are, are any of our Scottish beloved here with us this morning? Um, yes, uh, Sheena's here. Um, I don't think Diane or Tom are here maybe this morning. Um, but so with apologies to my, my beloved Scottish friends, um, I, I don't know if you've ever had a Scottish person ask you the question, where do you stay? Um, now, I don't know if this is all of Scotland, Sheena, or is, this, is it all of Scotland? And when a, when a Scottish person asks you, where, where are you staying or where do you stay? What, what do we think staying means? It means you're temporarily lodging somewhere. Um, but what does a Scottish person mean when they ask you, where do you stay? Where, where do you come from? Where, where's your home? Where do you live? And so you, sometimes you get a bit, uh, a bit confused and are not sure what they're saying. Um, in, our, in our proper way of speaking in Northern Ireland, um, <laughs> we, we, we use stay for, actually I realised thinking about this that the Scottish way is more logical because they, they say stay for the place where you actually stay whereas we use it for the place you don't stay. <laughs> right, so anyway, I, I, I'm acknowledging that. But what, what do we say? We say stay for somewhere you're visiting temporarily um, and we say live for where you, where you make your home, where you put down roots. Um, why am I talking about the Scottish and, and all that? Because in Greek, there are two words with a very similar distinction. And one of them means somewhere you are fleetingly visiting, somewhere you are staying for a while, but then intend to move on. And the other one means the place where you reside, where you dwell, where you put down roots, where you make your dwelling place. Um, And that's the word that Paul uses here. Christ is not a visitor to your heart, right? He's there to stay. He's there to live. Don't get confused by my words. He's there to make his dwelling, to make his home, to put down roots. Um, John 14, um, I love that verse where Jesus says, my father and I, and he's talking about the promise of the Holy Spirit, 
And he says, my father and I will come and make our home within you. And you'll no longer be orphans, right? So we're going to make our home uh, within you. So whenever we experience, not just as an idea, but as a reality, Christ dwelling in our hearts, it comes with a sense of homecoming, that this is our our heart's true home. Um, It also comes with a sense of fullness. Um, And this is a word that's in our passage, and I'll come to that in a wee second. Um, I I don't know if you'd agree with me. Um, I think one of the features of our modern culture, and maybe it's been true in every generation, but it feels maybe especially true right now, is a sense of emptiness and hollowness. Um, That sometimes in human life, there's a lot of activity and noise on the surface, and everyone's very busy, and everyone's got lots of stuff to do and lots of stuff to say. But sometimes underneath, there's a sense of something missing, of a a void, of a hollow uh, underneath, of an emptiness. Um, Bruce Springsteen used to sing, everybody's got a hungry heart. And every time I hear it, it, it rings true. There's a hunger, there's an emptiness beneath the surface of the noise of human life. Um, When Christ comes and makes his home within us, he brings with him a sense of fullness. Um, What what does it say just a few verses later? Um, I want to connect these two phrases. Um, Whenever Christ dwells in our hearts through faith, you will be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. (laughs) That that phrase always kind of... Blows the, the boundaries of your mind a little bit. You will be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Um, hum, human beings, we have this void, this emptiness, this hunger within. God in his own nature, and his own character, has no void within, no emptiness. He is plenitude. He is fullness. He is, uh, he is an overflowing fountain of life and joy and blessing and peace and all the rest. He's always full to the brim and overflowing, wanting to share his nature with others. There's no, no emptiness, no hollow with God. Um, and th- there's a phrase in Colossians. Colossians is kind of a companion letter to Ephesians. They were probably written around the same time. And do you remember what Paul says in Colossians? He says, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ. Right? And now connect that with what Ephesians says, so he was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ, and then Christ has come to dwell in us. And so I wonder, do you see how that means all the fullness of God has been pleased to come and dwell within you and I? Um, And so part of what I want to encourage us with this morning, um, I want to say this is true whether you feel it or not, because there are days when we don't feel it. That the fullness of God is in Christ and Christ is in you, so the fullness of God is within you, right? And I want to say that's true whether you, whether you feel it today or not. But I also want to say I believe God wants to bring you more and more into the lived experience of that fullness so that that hunger in your heart is getting more and more filled with the presence of the living God. So you, there's an experience of fullness as he dwells in you. Um, I wonder, do you believe that? It's true whether you feel it or not, but I want to encourage you, he wants, he wants it to be a lived experience for you on an ordinary Tuesday in your life, that the fullness of God is in Christ and Christ is in me, and so my emptiness is being filled day by day. Um, so 
When Christ dwells within us, it brings a sense of homecoming. It brings a sense of fullness. It also brings transformation. Um, And I think that's really important. Um, As Jesus makes himself at home within you and I, he brings his benevolent rule to the chaos of our lives. He comes into into our home, not just as a guest or a visitor, but to reign in our home. Uh, And that means he's going to bring change. Um, It means he's he's going to start, if we're going to use the image of a house, he's going to start to redecorate the house. Um, And in fact, that doesn't really go far enough. He's going to start to renovate the house. And when I say renovate, I mean radically renovate the house. Um, And so I always try to fight off the desire to quote C.S. Lewis in my sermons because I know I do it far too much. Uh, But I couldn't fight it off today. So I want to read you. Uh, One of my favourite little bits, I'm sure I've read it in the past before, uh, from Mere Christianity. Um, And it's it's an image that Lewis borrowed from George MacDonald. And he says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing. And so you're not surprised. But after a while, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and doesn't seem to make sense. What on earth is he doing? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. He's throwing out a new wing here. He's putting on an extra floor there. He's running up towers. He's making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage. But he is building a palace. So when Jesus comes and dwells within you, if you and I are going to pray, um, and it's a good, really good prayer to pray, would Christ, would Christ more and more come and dwell within me? We need to know uh, we may get more than we bargained for, right? We'll get a sense of homecoming. We'll get a sense of fullness. But he's also going to change us. And that process of change is not going to stop until we look like Jesus, until our character has been changed to reflect the beauty of Christ himself. And that's quite a lot of, I, I don't know about you, but I need quite a lot of renovation before I get anywhere close to that, right? So whenever he comes and dwells within us, he brings um, transformation. All right, so that's already this prayer. How on earth do you preach this prayer? There's, there's uh, quite a lot in it, um, and we're, we're only about halfway through. Um, let's go back to that phrase. Um, our, our big theme is that the power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, would show up in our lives, would strengthen us from within. Um, What else happens when the power of God shows up in our lives? So it it brings uh, this experience of Christ dwelling in our hearts through faith, which is what we most need, whether we realize it or not. But it also brings this. um, It brings a knowledge of his love. We come to know the love of Christ, which is what uh, the next part of the prayer uh, kind of focuses on. Um, And again, even as I put that on the screen, I wondered as a little part of you go, that's a bit anticlimactic. The, the resurrection power of Jesus has shown up in our lives. Uh, the power that turned water into wine, the power that calmed the storm, the power that gave sight to the blind. And the result of that power coming in our lives is that we know we are loved. <laughs> right? Does that, does that feel a wee bit um, anticlimactic? Um, but again, maybe I want to suggest um, that we underestimate how central this is to our lives. Um, so many of our 
problems and dysfunctions and, uh, and difficulties in our lives flow from a sense of being unloved or a fear of being unloved. Um, and so much of our healing and our freedom flows from a deep, deep knowledge that we are loved when that knowledge really gets into the root of us. Um, maybe, maybe one way to start to get a sense of that is just to ask the question, how would you live your life tomorrow if you really, really deeply, deeply knew that you were loved? How, how would you live tomorrow if you really knew that you were loved? How would you live differently? How would that express itself in the way you walk, in the way you live tomorrow? Um, hopefully it's clear uh, whenever we talk about knowing you're loved, we're not talking about head knowledge, uh, something theoretical or intellectual or, or merely doctrinal. Um, and Paul makes that really clear, doesn't he? Because he, he talks about um, knowing this love that surpasses knowledge, <laughs> right? So he's saying, this is a love you can't ever get your head around, but I want to pray that you'll know it. He's talking about a knowledge that is experiential, that is personal. He's talking about an encounter uh, with love itself. We sometimes sing about, I'm face to face with love himself. Right? That's what he's talking about, that you will encounter love face to face in a, an encounter with the God he loves you. Um, and when we, when we talk about this part, about knowing and grasping the love of Christ, um, I, I very much feel the limitations for a preacher. Right? How do you... How do you express this in words. And I, I think Paul has some of that feeling as well because he, he uses this extraordinary phrase. Where did I put my clicker? He, Paul is kind of looking for the words and he talks about how wide and how long and how high and how deep is this love, this love of Christ. Um, and you can, you can hear Paul kind of stretching for the words and he becomes all poetic and is picturing love almost like it has spatial dimensions. Um, uh, I, I, I don't know about you, I love, uh, that, I love that phrase, how, how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Um, I love that idea of the dimensions of his love. Um, I think it sets our imaginations kind of running. Um, part of what it says to me is, if you're on top of the world this morning, um, God's love will find you there. And if you're in the absolute depths of despair, God's love will find you there, Right? And if you run from God and you run as far as you can and you run to the furthest part of the earth and paddle in a canoe to an island and hack through the jungle and go to the top of a mountain and try and run away from God, you'll find his love there waiting for you when you get there, right? His, his love is beyond uh, any dimensions that, that we can think of. Um, of course, for you and I, the place we look when we want to see this love most clearly um, is the hill outside Jerusalem where Jesus died. Um, John writes in First John, this is how we know what love is. This is how we know. Um, and preachers in the early church, um, and some people think this is a little bit fanciful, but I, I think Paul is getting poetic and it allows us to be poetic. Um, but preachers in the early church often saw the four dimensions in the shape of the cross. They saw the cross itself reaching down to the earth and to the depths of wherever humanity had fallen. And they saw it reaching up to heaven to lift us to the heights of glory and the heights of God himself. And they saw the arms 
of the cross outstretched to invite and welcome the whole world. And so as they looked at the cross, they said, how high and how wide and how long and how deep is the love of Christ? And we look to the cross when we want to see what love is. Um, I, I wanted to say this. Um, sometimes um, I hear people say, um, I don't know if you hear it too, sometimes there's too much talk today about the love of God. Do you ever, do you ever hear people say that? Um, and whenever I hear people say that, that I, I get a little rumble of fierceness in my belly. Um, I, I think if I'm being honest, I know where it comes from. It comes from uh, my grandfather's garden in Carnlock, where it said in letters, I don't know how many feet tall, in flowers, that God is love. And my grandfather wanted everybody who came by his garden and passed the coast road in Carnlock to know that in his being, that's who God is. And beside it, he painted the Japanese character for love, which baffled everybody uh, going by. But I think that's where the fierceness comes in me. Um, so I want to say this morning, we cannot speak too much about the love of God. We can't do it. Um, we can speak of it in a distorted way, for sure. And we can end up talking about it as something sentimental and indulgent. And we can forget that it's a holy love and a fierce love and a relentless love that's not going to rest until we are like Christ, as we've been talking about this morning. But we can't speak too much or too often of the love of God. Um, there's never any danger of exaggerating it. It gives you great freedom as a preacher. There is no possibility of exaggerating the love of God. Um, whenever I think about it, I find uh, we need help from our poets and our songwriters uh, who often, they try to find the words to express uh, the love of God. Uh, let, me, let me just quote a couple of them. So one of our hymn writers says, the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star. It reaches to the lowest hell. Could we with ink the ocean fill where the skies of parchment made, where every stalk on earth a quill and every man ascribed by trade to write the love of God, God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. That's pretty good. <laughs> That's a good attempt, right? Um, another songwriter says, maybe more simply, it's so high, you can't get over it. It's so low, you can't get under it. It's so wide, you can't get around it. Wonderful love. Um, Maybe my favourite, um, my, my namesake, John Mark McMillan, who's a wonderful songwriter, uh, sings this. He sings, he is jealous for me. He loves like a hurricane. I am a tree bending beneath the weight of his wind and mercy. And all of a sudden, I'm unaware of these afflictions eclipsed by glory. And I realise just how beautiful you are and how great your affections are for me. And then he just sings in the chorus, because he loves us. Oh, how he loves us. Oh, how he loves. How he loves us all. Um, and I, I made the mistake this week of sitting in a coffee shop listening to that song, and I, I had to make a quick exit. I, but it's because I looked around the coffee shop, and I knew that everyone there was included in that love. How he loves us. We can't ever exaggerate it. We can't ever overstate it. Um, and I guess if I have one prayer for you this morning and for me. Um, my prayer for you is that you would be overtaken and overwhelmed 
by a sense of his love for you. Um, that it is beyond your capacity to imagine or comprehend. Um, and my prayer is that that love would reach the depths of you, would reach the secret parts of you, would reach the most wounded and lonely parts of you, would reach the fearful parts of you, would reach the angry and defiant parts of you, would reach the addicted and entangled parts of you. Um, because when that love reaches your inner being, everything gets changed. That's where our healing comes from. When we, when we know we are loved. Amen, Jimmy. Um, and then you will go out and live like you are loved. And the world will better watch out, right? If you and I know in the depths of our being how he loves us. Um, and by the way, it says, you know, you know how you grasp this love? Um, you do it together with all God's holy people. <laughs> and I love that, that it's, this isn't a solitary thing. Don't, don't just go to your room by yourself and try and think about the love of God. We do it together in community. And if you could do with just that experience this morning of being overwhelmed by the love of God, maybe ask someone, ask a brother or sister to pray with you and just pray that that love would overtake you and overwhelm you again um, this morning. And there'll be two people up here who'd love to pray with you uh, if you'd like to. Um, I am about to finish, but I can't finish without mentioning this phrase. Um, the way Paul, Paul ends, just when you think he's kind of taking you to the mountaintop and you've nowhere else you can go, he says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Um, and with this bit, I just want to do something really simple. Um, I, I want to just help us pay attention to what Paul says here. So I want you to think for a moment of all the things that we ask for. Right. So think about all the people in this room um, and think of all the things we pray about. We've been praying about things this morning, all the things we ask, the things we ask out loud, the things we ask in quiet, maybe that nobody else hears us ask. And Paul wants you to know that God is able to do all, all we ask. Right? That's pretty good. Then I want you to think about all the things we imagine. Right? So that's the little, the little dreams that go through your head and you quickly dismiss it because you think that's a bit wild, a bit out there. And you never mention it out loud to anybody, right? Or the, the dream that you carry deep down in your heart that's, that uh, you dare not speak to someone else because it's so precious to you, but you don't ever dare say it out loud. Those things we imagine. Paul wants to say, God is able to do all we imagine. Right? All we ask, all we imagine. And then he wants us to know that he's able to do more than all we ask or imagine. So he's not limited by our prayers and he's not limited even by our wildest dreams. He's able to do more, right? And then you and I want to know, well, how much more? Do we, do we make a pile of our prayers and a pile of our dreams and then double it or triple it? Or what do we do? And Paul says he's able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Uh, and those who've studied the Greek here say Paul made up a new word here because <laughs> he didn't have a word to say what he wanted to say. Um, uh, he, he essentially says, hyper, super, mega, abundantly, right? Something like that. Um, I actually think the old King James comes closest and says, exceeding abundantly above all we could ask or imagine. Um, and so I want to finish with a story because this, this helped me. Uh, sometimes just turning it into a story helps and then we'll pray and then we're done. Um, Eugene Peterson uh, tells a story about two friends of his who went to Haiti 
25 years ago to pick up a child they'd adopted. And the little girl they'd adopted was called Addie. She was five years old. Her parents had been killed in a traffic accident that left her without a family. Um, as she, she met them at the airport, and as she walked across the tarmac, she reached up and put her hand into the hands of her new parents, whom she'd just met. Um, that evening, back in Arizona, they sat down to their first supper together with their new daughter. And you can imagine this. There was a platter of pork chops and a bowl of mashed potatoes um, on the table. And after the first serving, the two teenage boys who were already in the family um, kept refilling their plates. And soon the pork chops disappeared and the potatoes were gone. And Addie had never seen so much food on one table in her whole life. And she'd never seen so much food disappear so fast. And so as the parents watched, her eyes got bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, But they noticed that she became very quiet and they realized something was wrong. Um, She looked afraid. She looked worried. Um, And then Cheryl, the the mother, guessed that it was the disappearing food. She suspected that because Addie had grown up hungry, when food was gone from the table, she might be thinking it would be a day or more before there was more to eat. So as it disappeared, she was afraid. And Cheryl had guessed right. And she took Addie's hand and she led her to the bread drawer and she pulled it out and showed her a backup of three loaves. She took her to the fridge, she opened the door, she showed her the bottles of milk and the orange juice and the fresh vegetables and the eggs and everything that was there. She took her to the pantry with its bins of potatoes and onions and squash and the shelves of canned goods, tomatoes and peaches and pickles. She opened the freezer and she showed Addie three or four chickens and a few packages of fish, two cartons of ice cream. And all the time she was reassuring Addie, there was lots of food in the house, No matter how much her older brothers ate and how fast they ate it, there was a lot more where that came from. And she would never go hungry again. Um, And Peterson says, every time he reads this prayer in Ephesians, he thinks of Addie. And he just has this phrase where he says, we pray in a household of extravagance. We pray in a household of abundance. Um, You and I are often anxious and afraid that it's going to run out that there isn't enough, or that God's busy on the other side of the world looking after bigger things. But we pray in a household of plenty, of abundance, of extravagance. Um, And the really simple question I'd love you to take into the week is, how would we pray if we really believed that? Um, I think we would imagine more, and dream more, and ask more, and pray more, and expect more, and see more. if we really believed it. Um, So let's pray together as we finish. Um, Let me remind you, um, if you'd like someone to pray with you this morning uh, for anything that God's stirring in your heart or that's going on in your life, there'll be a couple of people up here I would love to pray with you or just grab someone near you and ask them to pray with you. Father, I kind of have that feeling this morning like I've run out of words and I just want to pray really simply. Would you take the things we've been thinking about and would you, would you carry them by your spirit to the deepest parts of us where we really need to hear these truths? And I want to pray that every single person in this room would know this morning that they are loved with an everlasting love beyond their capacity to comprehend. Um, 
And I want to pray that we would believe that we, we live and breathe and move and pray in a household of extravagance and abundance. Father, help us to pray like that's true. Help us to live like that's true today and tomorrow and as we go into the week. And we pray in the name of Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen.